Welcome to the Heart of the Father podcast. We're glad you're here and able to listen in. We're praying the Lord will speak to your heart through this message and that you be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. Here we go. Second Timothy, or sorry, Second Thessalonians chapter 1 is where we're going to start. We're talking about the second coming of Jesus. We began that last week. And I want to go after it again today. I would ask you to pay close attention and try not to drift. I know, I know it's difficult sometimes. I know that I get accused of being long-winded, even though it's not true. But I feel like that this is divinely important, not just for this body, but for the church at this moment, what we're going to talk about this morning. I really believe that. And so I'm asking you to, to tune in. And, and if it chafes you then look at the Bible and see if we're reading it correctly, okay? We, we are under the authority of the Word of God, are we? Are we not? Okay. So as long as we can agree with that, um, let's read this passage and then we'll launch out. Some of this, I will warn you, may get a little cringy for some of you today. How many are okay with cringy every now and then? Okay. But it's, this is important for us. Second Thessalonians chapter... One, I'm going to read verses 4 through 10. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are indeed suffering. That's a foreign theology to us in America, isn't it? God is preparing us to be worthy of his kingdom by the things that he's leading us through by his grace, the things we're suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven, so this is his second coming, true? The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day to be marveled at among all those who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. I love verse 10, but we're going to hold off on that for a minute. And I want you to notice with me these words in here that are very sober and difficult. When Jesus comes again, he's going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that phrase, obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, because the gospel is, and I would never embarrass Mick, I love him so dearly. The gospel is good news unless you reject it, and then it is devastatingly horrible news. Those go together. And, and we're really cringy and allergic to talking about the wrath of God in the church today because it just doesn't feel good. But here's the reality. If we believe the word of God, then we have to believe 
that his wrath is a real thing. A.W. Pink was a theologian and an author, Bible teacher, and generation past. And he made this observation through his study of Scripture and search that there's almost 600 passages in the Bible that talk about the wrath and the judgment of God, which is more than all combined of the references to God's love, kindness, and mercy in all of Scripture. Why is that? Because that's more important? No, I don't think so. I think it's because we're just more hesitant to embrace that. And so he has to repeat it more often to get our attention because there's two sides. The wrath of God is throughout Scripture. And Jesus' second coming, two things are going to happen. There's going to be judgment upon all of those who don't believe God and who don't obey. Notice that phrase. It's throughout the New Testament. They don't obey the gospel. Oh, well, I believe the gospel, but there is a conforming of life to the gospel that he calls for when he puts it forth. It's not okay to say, I prayed the sinner's prayer and I'm okay because I believe the gospel. No, we have to obey the gospel. Otherwise, we're in a bad position and in shaky ground. This is difficult language. There is so much really difficult language, and I, I don't love it. I get a little cringy and allergic myself when I read some of this, and I've been studying the book of Revelation a lot, but there's language in there that is terrifying. Revelation chapter 14, the order goes forth. Go and harvest the grapes and the produce of the earth because they're ripe. And the angels go forth and they have knives and blades and they cut the vines off of the trellises and they bring them to the great winepress of God's wrath. And when those grapes are trod down in the winepress of his wrath, the Bible says this. This is allegorical, you may say. It's symbolic, you may say. But it means something. When those grapes are tread down, the blood flows out as high as a horse's bridle for 200 miles. And then we find out in chapter 19 that it's Jesus himself that's treading the grapes in the wine press. Dear little precious Jesus, who's tender with the lambs, yes. But he's also the coming king who's coming to execute judgment upon all those who have rejected. This is hard stuff. But you know, if you've read the New Testament much, it's over and over again. This is not just the Old Testament. It's just as much, if not more, in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus is the one who used the word Gehenna for the lake of fire 10 out of the 11 times that it's used in the New Testament. He's the one that gave us the descriptions from the prophets that there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's going to be a place of darkness and torment and fire. You go, well, that's just hellfire preaching. No, that's Bible preaching. And I know we're allergic to it, but if we're not careful, we're going to lose the truth of God and the urgency of the gospel. 
It's not a feel-good message. It's a life transformation message that has to be embraced and obeyed and followed out where Jesus becomes the center of our lives. I'm a fan of Francis Chan because I believe that he is very honest-hearted and he does the wrestle, and I like that. He's honest with how he feels about things, and I like that. And I want to read you what he said about this passage of Scripture that we just read in 2 Thessalonians. See if you connect or, or relate to what he said. Here's Francis. I'm struck by how allergic I am to repeating the very words that Paul wrote. Affliction, vengeance, punishment, destruction for all who don't follow Jesus. Refusing to teach a passage of Scripture is just as wrong as abusing it. I really believe it's time for some of us to stop apologizing for God and to start apologizing to him for being embarrassed by the ways he has chosen to reveal himself. It has taken me 43 years to finally confess that I have been embarrassed by some of God's actions. In my arrogance, I believed I could make him more attractive or palatable if I covered up some of his actions. So I neglected speaking on certain passages, or I would rush through certain statements God made in order to get to the ones I was comfortable with, the ones I knew others would like. I've been like the nervous kid who tries to keep his friends from seeing his drunken father. I've tried to hide God at times. Who do I think I am? The truth is, God is perfect and right in all that he does, and I am a fool for thinking otherwise. He does not need or want me to cover for him. There's nothing to be covered. Everything about him and all he does is perfect. God's judgment is actually an expression of his holiness. That's why in the book of Revelation, the scene in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5 that we love so much, the angels and the elders and everybody's beholding the lamb who was slain and the father God who's sitting on the throne and they're crying out, you're worthy, you're holy, you're holy, you're holy. Because that's the vision that they need to go forth into the difficulty, into the hardship, into the tribulation, and into the trouble that they're about to head in. They've got to be anchored and have a ballast in their ship, and that ballast is, he's worthy of my life, and I'm going to serve him and love him if I lose everything, including my last breath. That's the gospel of Jesus. It's trading everything that's precious for him. And my wife and I have been talking recently, and she's been sharing with me about how she's just been praying into and impressed by how we say things, but we don't necessarily live those things. They're not really substantive in our life. We say Jesus is our treasure, but how do we prove it? Y'all, this is not a beatdown. This is a challenge, and um, you, you can believe that this is not a, an easy message to preach, but it's a necessary one. In the church of Jesus, the idea of God's 
wrath, his judgment, his righteous judgment. It's, Paul calls it in the book of Romans. He says the day when Jesus returns is the day of wrath, and it is the day of God's righteous judgment. It's perfectly just. Scripture says that God's throne is built upon righteousness and justice. Do you believe that? That means everything that he does is right and correct and just, and it's always fair. Do you believe that? Do you believe God has ever been unfair with anybody? All right, that was a little weak. He, he never has been unfair because if he did, the very foundation of his ability to rule the universe would be shattered. And he would have no real authority because his throne is built upon righteousness and justice. Scripture says that in multiple places. Why are we cringy and allergic about this? First reason is we have all been brainwashed with something called humanism. This is humanism from the Cambridge University Press. Humanism is a doctrine attitude or way of life centered on human interests or values. A philosophy that rejects the supernatural and stresses an individual's dignity and worth and capacity for self-realization through reason. You know what sticks out to me about that definition is it is centered on human interests and values. And the gospel is not. The scripture is not. I know. I know. That flies in your face because you're like, what do you mean? This is the center of the gospel and of scripture. It is said in multiple places in different ways, but Romans 11.36 says that everything, all things were made by him. And through him and for him, to him be the glory forever. That is the actual center of the universe, is that God made everything by his own creative power, and he made it for himself ultimately, and so he should receive glory. That, that is the highest value. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the highest value in the universe? Is the highest value for people to be happy and self-actualized and, and for them to be comfortable and for them to feel good in their skin? And is that, I agree those are values, but is that the core? Is that the highest value for believers? What should be our highest value? I think we see it over and over again in scripture, but we kind of gloss over it because we've been infected. Our brain has been infected. Like I, I will confess to you, my brain has been infected with humanism because I went through school and I listened to TV programs and I listened to music and all of it tells me it's all about you. It's all about me. This is all about how I feel. It's all about what I want. It's about what I think. And it's not. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. That word is soul, the word suke, and it means what I think, what I want, 
and what I feel. And if you're going to be my disciple, you have to lay those things down as secondary. Those are not primary. What is primary is the glory of God. That is at the center of the universe. Secular, but we have a Christian form of humanism that is not atheistic. But it's still man-centered. So now what happens is the gospel becomes an add-on in my life that makes me feel happy, that gives me peace, that fixes my marriage, that fixes my kids, that fixes my bank account, that fixes what ails me. It's an, it's an add-on to my life. But there's no blazing center in the middle. I'm still the center. So now God in my relationship with him is primarily about me. It's about making me feel good and it's about fixing my stuff. And can I tell you that that is completely opposite of what the scriptural picture is. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to what? To, to the glory of God. This is why we exist. What was the plan of redemption thought up in the heart of God? Ephesians chapter 1, he says it. That it would be to the praise of the glory of his grace that we were saved in Christ Jesus. I know y'all don't like this. You think this is a total throwdown. But here's the reality. If we've been living in a man-centered belief that the gospel is all about how God's going to fix us and make us feel better, we've been living in delusion. Now, does he do those things? Absolutely. We know he does those things. I'm the beneficiary of all those things just like you are. But here's the thing. When it comes down to the core of who we are in obeying the gospel, Jesus made it very clear what this looks like. That he becomes the center. He becomes the treasure that we sell everything for. There is a brand of Christianity that has its own humanism. In Christian humanism, man is still the center, but we drop the atheist parts. Jesus and the gospel become add-ons to improve our lives and make us comfortable and happy, but we are still at the center. In biblical Christianity, Jesus is the blazing center, and everything revolves around loving him supremely and doing all to his glory. We live to please him and to rightly be aligned to him no matter what the cost. So our mindset, we have been infected by humanism that we have breathed since the day we were born. We've breathed in humanism since the day we were born. Second reason I think we chafe at this and that it makes us feel cringy is that we view God's wrath as out of control anger that is not fair. And that is simply not true. God's wrath is very slow and he's very patient and he's very methodical in how he waits. It's never out of control. Everything that God does is perfect and his wrath is the same way. Another reason we get cringy about talking about the wrath of God is we can't logically reconcile it with his love. But they're two parts of a whole, right? Have you read God's revelation of himself in I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6 to Moses when Moses is standing before him? He said, I'm the God who is full of compassion and merciful and gracious and I forgive the sins 
of those who love me and serve me for a thousand generations, but I'm also going to visit the iniquity upon the fathers and the children and their sons if they continue in disobedience. He's both. He's loving and he's holy. But I will tell you, in the context of heaven, when God is getting ready to judge, it's his holiness that comes to the forefront. Think about that. And a fourth reason I think that we get cringy is because we have never seen him up close in his holiness. Like for us, in, in our generation, even in mine, I mean, we've had a little taste of it. But I can tell you, there's hardly been a service in my whole life, which I've been walking with Jesus for 47 years. There's, I can hardly remember a single service. I don't even know if there was one, maybe. Where I sensed the fear of the Lord and the presence of his holiness being so overwhelming that I was terrified. I don't remember that ever happening. I remember lots of times feeling his love. And, and, and I'm not throwing down on that. Just hear what I'm saying. We have a bias that we have factored in to our gathering together that it's only going to be about God loving us and loving on us and stroking our hair and giving us a back rub and all that. And, and I'm good with all that. But he's holy. And why don't we pray for him to come in the manifestation of his holiness? See, if we saw him the way that Isaiah did in chapter 6, because Isaiah was a prophet who prophesied through the reigns of four different kings. He was the holiest man probably in all of Israel, the most trusted. He had the most prophecies about the Messiah of any prophet in the scripture. He was tied closely with the Lord. But when he got into the throne room, into the presence, what did he do? He was in the presence of perfect light. And this prophet, who was a man of God by every standard, goes, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm going to die right here because my eyes have seen the king. That's what he said. I'm going to die. I'm so unclean and I live in the midst of an unclean people because when perfect light comes on the scene, every single black spot gets revealed and we realize, oh, I'm really not that great of a guy. Because it was all relative to the people that I saw around me that I'm comparing. But when you get into the presence of God, it's a different story. Job, in his life, he thought he had an argument with God. Hey, I haven't done anything wrong. I've tried to serve you. Now why is all this stuff happening? And he's saying, God, come on, let's have an argument. Let's go before court. I want to argue my case before you. And the Lord finally goes, okay. In chapter 42, he comes on the scene like a whirlwind. And he says, now I want to ask you a few questions. You get on the witness stand. Were you there with me when I created the earth? Can you tell me how I spread the stars and the firmament out there? Can you tell me how I created the hippopotamus and how I made all of these different animals and Leviathan? You, you, go ahead, tell me. And Job is speechless. And here's what he says, so revealing. I've heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now that my eyes have seen you, I hate myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I'm a bloody fool. Everything that I've said about blaming you, for what? When God comes on the scene, he goes, I'm a complete idiot. And the Lord goes, 
There you go. There you go. Now you're ready for me to restore to you and to bless you again. Because in your arrogance, thinking you were going to argue with me, every mouth is going to be stopped. There will be no one at the judgment, not a single person of all the billions who have ever lived that will say to the Lord, you didn't do right by me. Not one. Every mouth will be stopped. And he will be justified. We've never seen his holiness up close. Even John, the disciple who laid his head on Jesus' chest, that tender, intimate, when he sees the risen Christ in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, there's not a lot to say. He falls down like a dead man on the ground. It's so overwhelming. See, part of our problem is we, we have an idea of how God should do things. And we're idiots when we do that. Because he, he's right, and he's righteous, and he's perfect in all of his ways. So his wrath is always justified. And at the second coming of Jesus, everyone who has rejected him is going to be judged eternally forever. And there's ways we should respond to this. But I want, I want to give, we got time. I want, I want to do a little seven point mini theology of the wrath of God in, in the Bible. Is that okay? Just real quick, real quick. Okay, here, here's, here's my seven points. The first one is the wrath of God is terrible and eternal. He just said that here. There's plenty of pictures. You can, you can read them. Read the things that Jesus said. Read the things that Paul said. It's terrible and it's eternal. Number two, God's wrath is perfect and fair. And it's an expression of his holiness. Look at Revelation chapter 16. This is, this is verses you probably have never read and may never want to read again. But they're in the God-breathed scripture and they're for our benefit and for our growth. Revelation chapter 16, this is where the bowls of wrath get poured out. So there's a progression in the book of Revelation. Starts out with the seals. And with the seals, there's like a fourth of the population that gets wiped out. And then when you go into the trumpets, it's like a third of the population. So it's getting more intense. It's like concentric circles of judgment. And when you get to the bowls, everybody dies. It's the most intense. It's the final, it's the grand finale of God's active wrath. He, he's coming to defend the honor of his name from those who have spurned him. Because here, here's the thing. In the book of Revelation, God has portrayed multiple times as being the creator of everything. Here, This is in the scene of uh, in heaven of the worship of the Lord, the king on his throne. And the last verse of chapter four of Revelation, verse 11 says that for you are worthy because you have created everything and because of your will and your pleasure, they were made. Everything that's made is made for the purposes and the will of the father, including you and me. We were made for a purpose for him. So we're not... Uh, independent contractors, we were made by him and for him like every other part of creation. 
Wrath has, so that's, that's number two. Number three, see how quick this is going? Number three, wrath has two modes of operation in the scripture. Here they are. The passive wrath of God and the active wrath of God. What is the passive wrath of God? When Paul writes the book of Romans, he opens up in chapter 1, and he's explaining the need for the gospel. And in verse 18 of Romans 1, he says, For the wrath of God is being present tense revealed against all ungodliness and all wickedness in the earth. And then you see, well, well, how's that happening? Is he pouring down the bowls? Is there lightning bolt? No. Here's what happens. It says twice following in that passage that he gave them over to their own desires. This is what he does. This is the passive wrath of God. That's what's happening now in the earth. It's happening. God's wrath is actually coming out right now in the earth everywhere. And the way he's doing it is saying, okay, that's what you want to do? Go ahead and do it and let's see how it works out. You reap the fruit of your own choices and the destruction that you reap is the wrath of God letting you have your way. The scariest thing and the scariest place in the world is for God to let you have whatever you want. You're going to go to hell if he does. You are. Apart from being born again and having the spirit of God in you. Because our desires will always lead us into destruction and that's what happens in Romans chapter 1. And so what happens with fallen people? They're under the wrath of God. God gives them over to their own desires. And they begin to worship. This is in the heart of man. Unredeemed. To worship the creation rather than the creator. So they begin to worship things. They begin to worship other idols. They begin to worship sex. They begin to worship their own bodies. They begin to worship all things created. And not give glory and worship to God. That is judgment. That's passive wrath. The active wrath of God is when he comes on the scene and he sends his angel like in Acts chapter 12 where Herod gets up there making a big boast and he's got all his bling on and he's out there and they start to shout, it's a God and not a man. And the Lord goes like that to his angel. Angel goes down, dead. Strikes him down, dead. Is that fair? Okay, nobody answered. So, is, is that fair? Is it fair for the God who created Herod and put him in the place of authority because he got up and blasphemed and took the credit that only belonged to God for God to strike him dead? Is that fair? How many are cringing right now? You're, you're in a cringy place right now. Just go ahead and be honest. It is fair. R.C. Sproul tells a story of when he was a professor in seminary. And in his syllabus, how many Southeasterners do we have? Okay, I got a couple. In his syllabus of the course, he lays out all of the due dates for when the papers are due. And there's four papers. First one's going to be due at the end of September, second one, the end of October, and so forth. And it says in bold letters on the syllabus, if your paper's not turned in on time by the date, it is an F. So, he's teaching freshmen, and so they're trying to get, especially if they were homeschoolers, they're, 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 they're trying to figure it out. I say that because all of our kids were homeschooled. But, so, he says, coming up on the last day in September... 
he had a little line of trembling students coming up. Dr. Spell, we're so sorry. We didn't make the transition from school and homeschooling. You know, we got to do whatever we wanted. Mom didn't know. And, and could you please just give us a couple of more days to finish and we'll, we'll, we'll get it into you. And he's like, okay, I'm going to give you two more days to finish your papers. And if you get them in by midnight that night, then I won't give you enough. He said on October 31st, he had same group of people, a little bit of line coming in. And they were a little bit fearful, but not too much. Kind of had a little bit of swag to them. Oh, um, you know, Dr. Sproul, we, we had a homecoming and like there was just so much that we had to do and, and it's just been so busy and you know, the cold's been going around. Like we, we just haven't been able to get our papers finished in time and could, could you please, please, like we'll wash your car, like wh whatever you want. Could you please give us another uh, couple of days extension to get the papers in? He's like, oh. It's against my better judgment, but I'm going to default to mercy and I'm going to give you one day this time. Oh, thank you so much. You're my favorite professor. I just love you. I tell everybody, Dr. Spoh is the greatest professor in this whole school. Isn't, he? Isn't that what we say? Last day of November, same group comes up. Hey, Dr. Sproul, how are you doing, man? Hey, uh, just wanted to mention to you, you know, it's been really, really busy with everything coming up towards the holidays and all that. And we didn't quite get the paper done. Like, we've been working on it, but it's just not quite done. And could, could, could you give us maybe a couple of days of extra time to get the paper in? And he says, No. This is the third time you've had the syllabus. You knew what the rule was. And I've given you mercy and mercy. And now you're presuming upon my mercy. So that's a no. You're getting an F. And somebody in the class yells out, that's not fair. He says, oh. Mr. Jones, you, you don't think that that's fair. And I can see that you're really upset and concerned about justice being done. So I've got my grade book here and I noticed that you didn't turn either of your first two papers in on time. And so I'm gonna give you an F for both of those because I know that you're passionate about fairness and justice. And so that's a zero and a zero. Anybody else think it's unfair? We definitely can do that with the Lord. And then we call it unfair. God, you've shown me mercy and grace a thousand times a thousand times a thousand. But now that you're going to bring judgment at the end of time when you waited so long, now it's not fair. No, it's not. It should have been done the first time. Because the reality is the way Bible portrays what sin is, is that it's personal against God. 
And it says, I don't care what your law says. I don't care what you want. I don't care what you said to me. I'm going to do what I want because the center of the universe is actually me. And we said that and lived that way. And I totally lived that way. The Lord apprehended me when I was 15 years old. And according to biblical justice and the law of Moses, I had already committed at least three sins that the Bible says I should be stoned for and killed. Just 15. If God was fair with me, he would have taken me out. Because it's just. But he's long-suffering. He's slow to anger. And his patient, his patience is huge. When Paul describes his conversion in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says that God set me up as an example of his immense patience because I was persecuting and killing his people and he didn't just strike me dead. Now he flicked me off my horse real good and he made me blind because he needed to get my attention but he should have smashed me and he showed immense patience. So, when Jesus comes again, the act of wrath of God is happening across the board. Everyone's going to get what they deserve. Jesus says in the last chapter of Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me to repay every person according to the deeds that they have committed. That's Jesus. Wrath is slow in coming. This is point four. With lots of opportunity to repent. Here's the amazing thing that I find in the book of Revelation. You're into these heavy judgments that are coming down upon the earth. And the Lord puts this phrase in like four different times throughout there. He says, even though they were receiving this judgment, they still refuse to repent. He's giving them opportunity. Okay, if you won't repent because I've been patient, and now you won't repent even though you're feeling the sting of what you really deserve, what, what, what is there left? We, we have this thing, we like to take Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 and say, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But read that passage. That, that is true. It's supposed to, but in, in Romans 2 verse 4, he says, do, do you despise the long-suffering and the patience and the kindness of God, which is intended to lead you to repentance? His patience with us and having mercy after mercy and after mercy is supposed to say, God, you're so good. I'm, I'm going to repent of my sin. But the next verse, verse 5 of Romans 2, and this is the book where Paul's explaining the gospel. He says in the very next verse, but because of your impenitent and stubborn hearts, you are actually storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the righteous judgment of God. So what's the point? Here, here's the terrifying thing. All of the kindness and mercy that the Lord has heaped upon people throughout their whole life 
who don't repent, it's actually going to add to the weight of their judgment and responsibility in that day. That's what he said. That's really heavy. That's cringy. That's allergic. Wrath is consistent in the Old and New Testament. I don't think I need to prove that. We already have done that. Number six, wrath is God's alone and never ours. This is a big deal. So Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read it to you. You know these verses, but listen, because all Christians don't get this. I've heard recently about a brother who was praying down curses upon another brother that he would get sick and that all kinds of bad things would happen and it's not the spirit of Christ. Romans 12 verse 19 tells us what we do. Never, this is verse 19, Romans 12, 19 to 21. Never, never, say never. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, what? Feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I think that may have a reference to that their judgment is going to increase if they don't repent. You can interpret that how you will. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with. So it's not okay for us to blow up or to kill abortionists. Can't do that. It's not our place. We're not the one who meets out vengeance and retribution. We don't, we don't do that. that. That's outside of our lane. We're acting like we're God when we do that. That's wrong and it's evil. Just needed to say that because there's some crazy ideas out there. <clears throat> Number seven, God's wrath, this is so glorious. God's wrath is fully satisfied at the cross for all who surrender their lives to Christ. This is the word propitiation that's used twice in the New Testament, Romans 3, 26 and 1 John 2, verse 2, that he in Jesus is the propitiation for the sins, for our sins and the sins of the world. What does propitiation mean? It means, this is really what it means, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. So he took the wrath that we deserved. Y'all, if, if, you, if you don't grasp, if we don't grasp that we deserve God's judgment, then we, we, we just, we're just not seeing clearly. I deserve so much judgment in my life. It's ridiculous. I think back through the way that I lived. What an absolute fool I was in rebellion. I mean, the Lord had every right to just take me out. But he actually spared my life when I was in that state of total rebellion where I loved a candy bar more than I loved God. I didn't give God a thought. I didn't give a rip about him in any way. And I remember one time riding on my motorcycle and they had just paved one side of the road, the lane, and so it's this much higher on one side. And I'm riding without a helmet, like a fool. And I have my buddy on the back, like a fool. And we're, we're going down the road and I'm up on the high part of it. And then I get down on the lower part of it. And then when I went to get back on the higher part of it again, this is, this is like six months before the Lord apprehended my life. 
When I went to get back up on there, it grabbed the steering wheel out of my hand. It jerked it like that, and I just closed my eyes and let go. I'm going 55 miles an hour. I have no helmet on. I got my buddy on the back with no helmet. And I'm telling you, it jerked the steering wheel out of my hand. And I just shut my eyes. Like, I'm, I'm dead. And there was a presence that came at that moment. And the steering wheel came back somehow into my hands. And I opened my eyes up again. And I'm still cruising down the road there. And when we stopped, that there was a tangible presence of God there. When we stopped, my buddy said to me, can you feel that? Like, what is that? I said, I don't know. Six months later, the Lord apprehended me in my house. He revealed himself to me, and he drew me to himself. He would have been totally just to let me reap the fruit of my own stupid ways, and I would have been dead on that street. But he saved me. I don't know if he sent an angel to that. I don't know what happened. But the presence of God was so real there that we were both freaked out. He, he could have let me reap the fruit of my ways. But he's merciful. And he knew that he had a plan and a purpose for me. So he drew me to himself. And I bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and I became the recipient of his cleansing blood and his propitiation where all of the punishment that I deserved, I deserved to die at least three times over according to God's laws. He took those on himself and he bore them for me and he said, you're released, go free. You're a new creature. Yeah. Y'all, you, you have that same story. How many times, Diane and I were talking the other day about how many times that I know the Lord has saved my life. And it's just crazy. He's merciful. And Jesus Christ has fully satisfied at the cross the wrath of God. That's so phenomenal. You know, what, what are we saved from? When we tell people we're saved, what do we mean? Mick read it this morning really quick in Romans 5. It says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Have you ever had somebody, when you're in my early days as a young believer, witnessing to a girl one time, ask her, are you saved? She said, saved from what? And I didn't know. <laughs> I for real didn't know. But the Bible says we're saved from two things. We're saved from his wrath, which we rightly deserve. So basically we're saved from justice. We're getting mercy. And we're saved from our sin. We're saved from the result of our sin. And we're saved from the power of it is what the gospel is. In conclusion, I want to give you three ways that we should respond to this. Recognizing the wrath of God and its reality and its, its weightiness. Like, I, I don't know about you. Like, I, feel, I just feel the weightiness. I feel the weightiness. When we're talking about the Lord coming back again, I mean, th there is a positive side of celebration for those who are truly his that is phenomenal.
and we can talk about the benefits and what's going to happen, at least a little bit that we know. But, but there's a weightiness about knowing that all of those who have spent their life in rebellion against Jesus or not all in, just playing and being a pretender, on that day, it's going to be devastating, terrifying, and irreversible. So what should this do? First of all, here's three things that we, how we should respond. We should respond with profound gratefulness. I'm telling you, my friends, I've walked with Jesus for quite a few years since he rescued me. But there's hardly a week that goes by where I don't get down on my knees and just say, God, thank you. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that has washed my sins away. Thank you for taking away the wrath that I so richly deserved and for making me your own. Like we should on our knees thank him for his blood. This is not theoretical stuff. This is real. Number two, we should have compassion upon those who don't know him. This is Jude 22 and 23. It says this, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment that is polluted by the flesh. That's what we should do. We should reach out with compassion and look at people. Listen, if we're talking about the second coming of Jesus, it should point our vision to the fact that one day that is going to happen. Either when they die or we die or when Jesus comes back for the second time, but everybody is going to go underneath the judgment of the Lord. Either Jesus took it or you take it. Reach out with compassion. And number three, I want to read 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. It's up on the screen. We should live very carefully. We should live a careful and a holy life. It's really sobering, the things that get revealed I mean, in leadership, you see things where just the brokenness of folks and bad choices that they make and the fruit of that. And it's hard. It's hard to see. For me, it's the hardest part of being a leader is to wrestle through those things. I carry them in my heart, and I take them to my bed at night, and I wrestle with them in my sleep. I really do because it, it grieves me, the brokenness of people. Let's read this verse 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, talking about at his coming, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Like if, if we know that on that day we're going to face the one that Isaiah cried out and said, I'm dead because I've seen you, we're going to see him face to face on that day. How should that make us live now? Very carefully and with a holy life. Hide nothing and expose everything is a good mantra. Listen, listen to me. Paul said this was his gospel in Romans 2 verse 16. He said on that day of Jesus' coming, he is going to reveal the secrets of every heart. Whatever you think is secret now, 
It won't be secret then. And you know what? It doesn't matter if it's secret now, if it's revealed then. That's the only thing that matters. He's going to reveal all the secrets. So here's the thing. This is what I've learned. Just expose everything. Expose it. I'm not saying shout it from the pulpit, but expose it somewhere. Say, you know what? This is why we're supposed to confess our sins to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. Expose it. We're sons, we're children of light. Ephesians 5 says, walk as children of light. Expose everything to the light. So everything that's hidden, everything that's a secret, like ask yourself, what in my life is a secret that nobody else knows, but I'm ashamed of it. And you need to take that out and go find somebody that you trust and say, hey, I, just, I need to tell you, can you pray for me? Like I've had this secret secrets always bind us because you're always trying to protect that somebody doesn't find out. They're bondage. Confess your secrets and make them known to the Lord. Make them known where appropriate to your brothers and sisters. Can I just put a little caveat because I hear these kinds of things and it makes me crazy. If you're a guy and you're lusting after a girl, don't tell her. Idiot. <laughs> Go tell another brother. Don't be stupid. You will forever alienate her. What are you thinking? She'll be so cringy around you. She's just dumb. All right, I got that out of my system. But expose all the darkness to the light. This, this is the key. This is one of the keys to living holy. Expose it to the light. When I have issues in my life that I need to deal with, and I do all the time, I take them. You've heard me say this before, but I'm going to put it out there because it's been helpful to me. I write it on a three-by-five card. I'll write the scriptures that deal with that particular issue, and I'll take it to the Lord, and I'll just pray. I'll keep it in my pocket, or I'll put it on my desk, or sometimes when I'm laying, if I'm tired, I'll lay on the floor, and I'll just hold it up to the Lord. I'll say, this is what I need. But I acknowledge that this is an issue in my heart and I'm not okay with it. Shine your light on every place that's dark inside of me. I want it to be exposed because the, that same passage in Ephesians 5 says, whatever's exposed to the light, I don't know how this works, becomes light. When we expose it, the light of God comes in and it pierces through everything and that's the power. That's what happened to Isaiah in the throne room. He got exposed. And the Lord said, touch his tongue with a coal. Now you're clean. He got cleansed. The holiness of God doesn't just expose. It cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.